Here we go. All right, and we're live. So good to be here. So good to have you guys with us tonight. And um, I normally was actually thinking of doing a different topic tonight that I did last year, but instead I decided to take something that I said last year in five minutes and turn it into a whole class. So there's a lot more to talk about, just suffice it to say that there's a lot going on in this week's Parsha. It's full. It's jam-packed. Okay? And I'll just mention some of the things, but we're not going to talk about them. Okay? If you want to hear about them, maybe I'll do a podcast later if I have time. Alright, Baloscha means in the the kindling, in the lighting. And it begins talking about the mitzvah of lighting the menorah in the temple, not in your house, but similar idea, connected. Uh, maybe we'll talk about it later, in a, if there's time. Then we go through and we talk about the 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 Levites, that's me, that's my tribe, some of the stuff we did in uh, and we've been actually talking about them for the past uh, two weeks. We're in the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, the book of Numbers, and we're going to show you something very surprising right now that you did not know. I guarantee you did not know. How many? All right, wait. Oh, let me just finish the the themes. We have the we have just in this week's partial we've completed a full year from the Exodus. And now the Jewish people celebrate their second Passover in the desert. So it's one full year. We've gone full cycle. We're still at the Mount Sinai, and we celebrate our second Pesach. There's something called the Mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. There were some people who weren't able to do the second Passover because they were impure, and they asked for another chance. And Hashem said, you know what? I'll give you another chance. So one month after Passover is Passover number two. Passover take two. So if you miss Passover, you get another try. And uh, that's real. That's in the calendar, Jewish calendar. One month after Passover is Passover take two. It's called Pesach Sheni. All right, that's cool. And um, then we have the discussion of the journeying. And we're about to leave Mount Sinai. It's been a year, a year and one month. And on the 20th of the month of Iyar, we left Mount Sinai. And we left in an interesting way. When did we journey? It says that there was a divine presence that hovered over the Mishkan, over the, the tabernacle, the sanctuary in the desert. And when the divine presence, the cloud would lift up, that was a sign for us to move, move out. And we would journey like that. And we were re getting ready to go into the land of Israel. We were basically a few days away from Israel, but then the troubles began. And we began the most famous Jewish custom. What are Jews most famous for? Worrying, complaining, complaining, and worrying and then complaining about their worries, that's good. Complaining, we began complaining, and in this week's partial we started complaining about three different things. We complained about we complained about the journey was too hard. We complained about the food, lack of food. We missed the food that we ate in Egypt, the cucumbers and the watermelon and the fish and the meat. And we got complained about the man, the, 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 the spiritual bread we were eating in the desert. And we found whatever it is, whatever situation we're in, you can guarantee we can find something to complain about. And actually, do you know what they complained about about the mun? The mun was this 
ephemeral, special magical spiritual bread that was like completely perfect for your body and it tasted like whatever you wanted and it gave you complete um, incredible sustenance and you didn't have to do anything it was just right outside your house every morning but you know what we complained about it's so refined that you didn't have to go to the bathroom the mana mana man we complained that we missed going to the bathroom how jewish is that all right The more spiritual you were, the closer it was to your house. Right. Okay, and then Parsha ends with um, Miriam criticizing Moshe. She was uh, unhappy about something and she got afflicted with this skin disease. Okay, finished. So now the part I want to talk about is the journeying. And there's something very interesting in this week's Parsha, which you guys have never heard about, I guarantee. Unless you came to my class one year ago. Okay, how many books of the Torah are there? Five, right? That's why we call it a chumash. Chumash means five. Chamsa, five, Arabic, five. Five books of Moses, right? But that's actually incorrect. That's only according to one opinion in the Talmud. But according to the second opinion in the Talmud, there are actually seven books of the Torah. Seven books of the Torah. Why have we not heard of this? these two other books? So, you know what? The two of the other books are in this week's Torah portion. In fact, in this week's Parsha, we have three books of the Torah. The Parsha begins with the book of Bamidbar, Numbers. Then suddenly, in the middle of the Parsha, there's this really weird thing. If you look in a Torah scroll, there are two upside-down letter nuns. I'll show you what it looks like. If I can zoom in with my camera here. Uh, if you can see this, I don't know if you're going to be able to see this. One second. This. Okay. If you look here, it's a little blurry. But, okay. You see, for anyone who knows Hebrew... There's a, uh, you see where, well, whatever. There's two upside down, upside down nuns that are surrounding two, two sentences, two verses. And inside those nuns is the verse that we say when we take out the Torah on Shabbos and when we put it back. When the ark would travel, Moshe would say, Kuma Hashem, get up Hashem, and scatter your enemies from in front of you. And when the ark would rest, they would say, Shuva Hashem, return Hashem, or, or rest Hashem, Ravavos Alpha Yisrael, either the, the many thousands of Jews or amongst the many thousands of Jews. And that's it. And the Talmud tells us a crazy thing. The Talmud says that is book five of the Torah. Right there. Those two verses. Book five of the Torah. And then, right after it, begins book six. And then the book of Deuteronomy. 
Devarim is book seven. So there you have it. Seven books of the Torah. Three of them right here. One of them is only two sentences long. What's going on with that? Okay? I, I don't know the answer. But maybe we'll talk about it. Maybe. We'll figure out an answer. Okay? So now, we complained. We, we, the different, so one of the explanations in the Talmud is that it's not a separate book. It's just an interrupted verse. It's interrupting to show, to interrupt between all the complaints that are about to come. So really the book of, until now, we have the exodus from Egypt. We have the, the revelation at Mount Sinai. Then we have many, many, many verses explaining the building of the tabernacle in all its details and the clothing of the Kohanim, of the priests. And then we have the book of Ayikra, Leviticus, which is basically the whole book is devoted to how to do animal sacrifices and the different offerings and things that were done in the temple service. And now the book of Numbers talks about the encampment in the desert. And suddenly there's this thing with nuns, this strange two-sentence thing, which is, according to one opinion, a different book in the Torah. And according to another opinion, it's separating between all these complaints which are about to come. And it begins a new section of Jewish history. At this very moment, we were about to enter into the land of Israel. Three days, we could have been in the land of Israel. We could have even been there in one day. But then we began complaining, and then all hell breaks loose. And it's one tragedy after another. Next week's partial, we have the spies who go into the land of Israel, and it didn't go well. We get, we basically get the consequence that we're stuck in the desert for another 40 years. Then we have Korach, communist rebellion, communist revolution in the desert, uh, trying to overthrow Moshe. And then we have Bilaam, uh, who tries to curse the Jewish people. So things didn't go well in the desert. We spent another 40 years in the desert. So this, this section interrupts what could have been uh, a beautiful transition directly into the land of Israel with a whole bunch of tragedies. Okay. And some of the things we complain about in this week's Parsha, we said the food, we complain about the journey being too hard, we cry about relationships not being able to marry uh, close relatives like we used to be able to before the giving of the Torah. And um, another thing that the Talmud says is that we basically, one of the things we did wrong here is that we ran away from Mount Sinai, like kids running away from kindergarten like kids running out of school, like the bell rings and you get up and run, all right? That's what it says, that's what the Quran says. So we ran away like kids running away from school. So because we wanted to get out of there, we're like, we're done. Um, <laughs> you actually are allowed to marry your cousin, Becca. But uh, it was more like siblings, I don't, yeah, it's a good question what they were upset about there. But, okay, so the journey begins. The journey begins. And how does that journey begin? So the journey begins when the cloud lifts up above the encampment. Hashem's presence leaves and then we go. And then we start journeying and groping in the darkness, searching. We don't know where we're going. In fact, they had no idea how long they were going to journey for. Every time the cloud would lift up, they would go. Sometimes they would travel for a few days or a few weeks. Sometimes they would travel for just one day and then the the Divine Presence would come back down and they would camp. And then they'd they'd have to put back 
everything t- together for the whole sanctuary. It took a lot of work to put it back together. And they wouldn't know how long they were going to stay for. And suddenly it would go up again and they'd have to leave. Sometimes they'd leave the next day. Sometimes they'd be encamped for 19 years in one place. So they never knew where, how long they were staying. They never knew how long they were going. It's kind of like Jewish history in a lot of ways. We never really know how long we're going to stay in the country that we're at. And uh, for those of you who've been like following what's going on in the past few weeks in America, so a lot of Jews are thinking, this is maybe not a, a place for us to stay for that long. Jews getting beaten up in the street, right? Jews getting beaten up eating in kosher restaurants, right? People, people uh, screaming, you know, death to Jews and like death to Israel. And it's not a, such a simple time for us over here. Uh, I, wrote, I posted an article on Facebook from the New York Times that I thought was very, very well put. And he goes through how, how um, you know, there are a lot of people who claim that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. And that may be true, but he says, it seems like a lot of people forgot to read that memo. Because there's a whole lot of people who claim to be anti-Zionist, but then they're yelling death to Jews. So he said, I think that American Jews should read, the, should look at what's going on and not, not look at it with outrage. Instead, they should look at it as an omen of what's to come. So, Jewish history, we never know when we're going to leave. But I want to talk to you about one interesting thing about this journey in the desert. And how do we deal with those times when Hashem's presence is missing? When, right, we have this this divine presence that's hovering over the the sanctuary, Hashem's with us, we're resting, we're we're in a, a state of of I guess um of, of balance and of peace and suddenly that presence disappears and then we have to journey we have to search we have to search for it we have to go through the desert but we know we're going somewhere we're going eventually to the promised land we know we have a destination but how do we deal with those moments when God's presence lifts up and disappears and we feel like we're left alone so I want to share with you an amazing idea that, that comes out of a very specific detail from the laws of Shabbos okay so I want to do a little uh, background into some of the laws of Shabbos, and then we'll come out with a very, very interesting idea about how to deal with times when we feel alone in life. So, what are we not allowed to do on Shabbos? Work. Work. We're not allowed to do work. And how does the Torah define work? Creating things. Creative actions, but what creative actions? Anything that creates something that wasn't there before, like fire. Mm. Not exactly. I mean, yes, in in many ways, it's most creative actions. But where do we get those creative actions from? They're very clearly defined, according to the Torah. The things that were done to uh, in the temple. Great. The thirty-nine activities that were done in the temple. So. Yeah, 39 malachas, it's called. 39 activities, and as Steph said, they are creative activities. We learn them from the building of the Mishkan. And these actions have to specifically be done in order to transgress Shabbos. They have to be done in the way that they were done in the tabernacle. Okay, so if you do an action which is similar, but for a completely different intention, it's not biblically prohibited. I'll give you a good example, okay? Um, digging a hole is one of the things we're not allowed to do on Shabbos 
But that's only when you dig a hole for a creative purpose, right? For example, um, you need, you are plant, planting something, okay? So digging a hole is plow, is, a, is, a, is an act of plowing. In order to plant something, that's a creative act. What about if I go into my kitchen and I dig a big hole in the middle of my kitchen? Have I done anything wrong? <laughs> my wife would definitely not be happy. Is that considered uh, work on Shabbos? So it really depends. It depends entirely on my intention. If my intention is to destroy something, is that a creative action or not? Is destruction creative? So, so, so change, one second. Matt, you're breaking up. You can't ask questions. Matt, you cannot ask questions. Not in this, this drunken state of yours. You can ask questions only once you get better reception or sober up. Um, you can type in your question though, Matt, and we'll gladly read it. Um, so Steph, Steph's point is, is well taken that change, we are changing the state of the kitchen, but change is not necessarily a problem, right? I'm allowed to change stuff on Shabbos. I can change my clothing. I can move a couch, actually, even though it's a lot of work, I could actually move the couch from one room to another. I can, um, I can change my food to some degree, not from an uncooked state to a cooked state, but, you know, it's not change by, per se, is not the issue, although may, maybe there are no uh, good cases to show that that is the issue, but it's, it's the creativity that's the issue. Is destruction creative? How? Well, ah, so Steph said you rip a piece of paper, you've now created two pieces of paper. So that is only if your intention was to create two pieces of paper. If you're, and in which case, then you can't do it. Right? We don't um, rip toilet paper on Shabbos because that's a creative act. But if I were to just take up, take my class and rip it up because I'm sick of it, so that would not be creative. That would be destructive. And in fact, there's a discussion. What? Ah, I'll rip it up after class. So there's actually a discussion about whether or not you can rip paper when you're angry. Because according to some opinions, when you're angry, ripping paper is actually creative. Because that's productive. You're getting rid of your anger. But if you rip something up for no reason, that is destructive, purely destructive. And according to the Torah, you have not violated Shabbos. There might be uh, uh, rabbinic issues with it, but there's no... There's no biblical issue with destroying something for the sake of destruction. Because the Torah says, don't do creative action, don't do work, don't do things that were done in the building of the tabernacle. So if you do something that has no creative purpose, you haven't violated Shabbos. Clear? So now, let me ask you a question. 
Let's find an example, besides the example I just gave of ripping paper. Can someone think of an example of destroying something which is creative? What would be a case of breaking something down, destroying something that actually serves a benefit, a productive benefit? Is that purpose? like burning fire? A meal corporation. So fi fire. Okay, fire destroys in order to create. And fire is something that we can't do on Chavez. So that's considered creative. The act of fire itself is creative. Mike, what were you going to say? Meal preparation. How? You cook something. So why? Cooking breaks stuff apart? Yes, it's a, it's a, you're, you're transforming the state. Okay, that's interesting. So again, the transformation of, of state right. of matter. Um, and, 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 but again, cooking is its own prohibition. So what's, what if I were to just take an, a pickaxe and just destroy my kitchen floor? How could that be creative and productive? Because you're going to build again something for your kitchen. Bingo. The Talmud says the only time, the only time that destroying something is productive is you're destroying in order to rebuild. So to destroy something in order to rebuild is actually forbidden on Shabbos. Yes, Mike. Wow. Akiva, he just asked if playing with Legos is not allowed on Shabbos. Um, so I, I think the answer, my son wants to answer. He's an I'm expert in Lego. Yeah, Akiva, what do you say? Really, some people hold differently than others, but the, w the way that we hold is that playing with Legos at a certain age, I think that in our family we start at 10 years. If you play with Legos, it's considered as if you're building something and we don't really do it. But when we're younger than 10 years old, then we, then we still play like my younger siblings play with Legos. <laughs> Thank you, Akiva, for that beautiful answer. Play-Doh would also be an issue. The, the problem with building something is if it's going to last for more than 24 hours, so that means you're building something that you want to last, and that is a problem. Puzzles, if it's if it's a puzzle that's gonna last, it is, I believe, problematic. If it's one of those really big puzzles that doesn't actually stick together, so that's not an issue. I mean, big pieces, but little pieces would be a problem on Shabbos. Daniel, um, music is problematic on Shabbos, but only rabbinically. Biblically, there's nothing wrong with music. So. Maybe big puzzles, maybe big puzzles that don't stick together, really. So, so here's the thing. Destroying something in order to rebuild. So the Talmud, one opinion in the Talmud, Rabbi Yossi says, Rabbi Yossi says that the only time, and the same thing with sewing, by the way, if you want to rip a stitch on Shabbos, if you're doing it in order to re-sew it, so it's a problem. Right? If you're just ripping it just because you want to destroy your clothes, so it's not a problem. So Rav Yossi in the Talmud says a slightly different opinion. Rav Yossi says, the only time you violated Shabbos for destroying something is when you destroy it in order to rebuild it. And here's the catch. On the exact same place. Destroy your kitchen floor in order to rebuild the kitchen floor in that place. But if you destroy the kitchen floor in order to pick it up and build it down the street, that would not be a violation of the biblical 
problem of destroying something. So here's the question for you, my friends. How do we know that breaking something down, destroying something, is forbidden on Shabbos? When was something destroyed in the tabernacle, right? Everything that we do on Shabbos, we do we can't do on Shabbos because it was done in the building of the Mishkan, the sanctuary in the tabernacle in the desert. So just like they built structure together, so we can't build stuff on Shabbos. Just like they cooked certain spices, we can't cook on Shabbos. Just like they dug certain things, we can't dig on Shabbos. So what were they doing that was breaking apart in order to rebuild? When did they do that in the tabernacle? Bingo, Steph, once again, hit it on the head. Whenever they would journey in the desert, they had to disassemble the entire tabernacle and then rebuild it again in the next location. So based on that, what is the Gemara's question going to be on Rebiosi? Rebiosi just said, the only time you transgress the prohibition of destroying in order to rebuild is when you rebuild on the same place. What's the question? Well, well, what do you mean? Where, where, where was it rebuilt? In the desert. Steph, you want to help him out? Jaylene? In a different place. The only time it was rebuilt was in a different place. It was never rebuilt in the same place. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yossi, how can you say such a thing? In order to transgress a biblical prohibition, you have to do it in the same way that it was done in the desert, in the tabernacle. But in this case, the only way it was done in the tabernacle was that it would be built in a different place. So how could Rabbi Yossi say that you have to rebuild it in the same place? So, well, we would say that, but Rabbi Yossi says no. Rabbi Yossi says no. So what's, what is what is Rabbi Yossi's response? So says Rabbi Yossi, because it says in the Torah, in this week's Parsha, it says, Al pi Hashem yiso, according to the word of Hashem did they travel, ve'al pi Hashem yachanu, and according to the word of Hashem did they encamp. And says Rabbi Yossi that somehow this answers the question. Because they traveled according to God's word, for some reason, the whole desert, the whole journey is considered in the same place. So I don't know, I don't really know if that answer is understandable. So I want to explain it to you using a, uh, a metaphor from, from a famous rabbi who, uh, who lived uh, in, the, in the last generation. Rav Chaim Shmuel Levitt says as follows. He says, if you were to ask a mother take a mother any mother busy mother with a small child and she's carrying the child in her arms throughout her day and you would ask the mother what did you do today where'd you go and she would say to you well I woke up and I drove my kids to school and then I went to the supermarket and on my way home I stopped off at the bank 
and then I came home and then I had to go out to get the mail and uh, then I went to the laundry room and did some laundry and then I uh, went upstairs okay that's the mother's day if you would ask the baby where'd you go today what would the baby answer I didn't go anywhere I was in my mother's arms all day says Rukhaim Shmuel Levitz, this is Rav Yossi's answer is that the journey in the desert was with Hashem we were with Hashem the entire time and because of that the entire journey was in Hashem's arms in Hashem's embrace and in fact one of the, the word in Hebrew that Rav Yossi uses is that you're only obligated if you destroy something in order to rebuild it b'makomo in its makom the word makom means its place but it's also a name of God because God is called the place because God is the omnipotent place of everything he is the place in which we exist we exist within his place every place is his place so the message that I believe this is telling us is that we're in the desert God is present with us at Mount Sinai for an entire year. We feel God's presence and suddenly the cloud goes up. Suddenly God's presence leaves us and we feel alone and afraid. And suddenly we begin to complain. We run away from that experience. We run looking to fill that emptiness, to fill that void with all sorts of other pleasures. We run towards food, drugs, close family relatives who are no longer allowed to us anymore. We try to fill the emptiness. We run away from spirituality when in reality, the only way to fill that void is with spirituality. That's what we really need. And Hashem's presence is seemingly missing. But that is an illusion. If you, you guys might be familiar with the poem Footsteps. Anyone familiar with the poem Footsteps? I might have mentioned it before. It's a beautiful poem. Let me, uh, let me pull it up for you right now. Um, I think it was written by... Um, I think it was written by like an old American poet. Maybe... Um, What's her name? Stevenson? Uh, I don't know who wrote it, actually, but I will read it to you. It says as follows. Um, One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with God, across the sky flashed all the scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footsteps in the sand. One belonged to me and one belonged to God. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footsteps in the sand. And I noticed that many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footsteps. This really troubled me. So I asked God about it. God, you you said that if I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, There was only one set of footsteps. I don't understand why when I needed you the most that you would leave me. I was crying. And God whispered, 
my child, one second, just lost it. Those times when you saw one foot of step, that, when you saw one set of footprints, that was my footsteps and I was carrying you. So the times in our life, this is a beautiful, beautiful idea. I just tried to Google it and I pulled up like six versions that were not the real thing. But uh, it's, it's actually quite beautiful if you find the original. Um, the times in our life when God, when things seem the darkest, when we seem the most alone, we are not alone. God is carrying us, literally picking us up. There's a, uh, a story I heard today that I heard many years ago, actually, um, that there was a Holocaust survivor who was 10 years old at the time that he was taken to Auschwitz. And on the day Auschwitz was liberated, on the day that the Russians, Russian army began to approach, his father, who had been supporting him the whole time and helping him survive, was, was killed by the Nazis on the last day before liberation. And the Nazis gathered up everyone who was alive and took them on a death march from Auschwitz to Germany. And they marched for seven days without any rest, without food, without water. Um, I think they allowed them to, to eat snow every, maybe a few times a day. And that was it. And people would just, you know, if you fell, you would be shot. And uh, this boy, who was now 11 years old, said, many years later that he thought many times he should just fall out of line and let them shoot him so that the pain would be over. He didn't have his father there. He felt all, all alone. And then he remembered a saying that his father used to tell him from the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tov said when someone was once afraid to walk alone in the woods, he said, a Jew has to always remember that you are never alone. A Jew is never alone. And that is a lesson that we, we have to think about throughout the hard times of our life. The Baal Shem Tov tells, says an amazing metaphor for life. He says, when kids, when parents want to teach their child how to walk, what do they do? How do you teach your kid how to walk? You hold his hand. But if you always hold his hand, he's never going to learn how to walk. And I remember, I remember when I learned how to ride my bike. Right, my father was holding me. By the way, my father just celebrated his 80th birthday. Should uh, should be healthy and uh, have a refuah shlema and ad meyav esrim. My father was uh, took me down to the park near my house. I still remember. And he was holding the back of the bike, and I said, "Dad, don't let go! Don't let go! Don't let go!" And then I said, "Dad, don't let go!" And he said, "I let go like five minutes ago." <laughs> and uh, I was riding, you know. So I remember when it was my turn to take my kids to ride, like my first, my oldest son, when I t tried to teach him to ride his bike. I was so nervous. What if I'm that one father who can't teach his kid how to ride a bike? I was so scared. But lo and behold, they all picked it up one after another. And how did it work? Holding the bike, holding the bike. I'm gonna let go just for a minute, but I'm still right here. Let go for a second. Then, then they get scared, grab it, right? And then let go again. And then next time you let go for a few more seconds. And then in a few minutes, so my first son, when we took him out in the day, that after a few hours, he was riding. My second son, Akiva, was right here. Same story, took him a little bit longer. He was a little older, took him out to ride. The first time I let go, he was riding. 
literally, he waited till he was a little re- more ready. My daughter, I took her out to ride. She was giggling, cracking up. She couldn't keep the thing straight, could not do it. I took her a second time. She's giggling. She's can't, I, I'm like, this is not going to work. And then the next day, she took out her bike and rode on her own. So eventually, they figure it out. But what's the lesson, Daniel, before you go? Is that in order to grow, you have to let go. In order to teach your kids how to walk, you have to let go. And the Baal Shem Tov says that's the story of our lives. When times become tough, when it feels like Hashem is letting go of us, He's waiting to catch us. He just wants to give us the opportunity to learn how to walk on our own, to learn how to achieve greatness through overcoming the hardship and knowing that we're ultimately all in His hands. So I believe that this is the lesson of the fifth book of the Torah, which is only two lines, two lines, the fifth book of the Torah, which says when the Jewish people, when when the ark would travel, and the, the people would say, get up, Hashem, and scatter your enemies, and when it would rest, they would say, come back, return. And this is the lesson of our lives. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, the famous Hasidic master buried in Uman in the Ukraine said that a person in life has to become an expert in Ratza Vashuv. Ratza means running and Shuv means returning. He said all of life is a process of running towards and then running away. Running towards and then running away. Progress and then regressing. Good times and then hard times. Inspiration and then loss of inspiration. And light and darkness and we have to remember the Torah begins when does a Jewish day begin Jewish day begins in the night because you have to go through the darkness in order to experience the light so when times look tough when there's hardship when you feel alone know that Hashem is literally making room for you he's giving you wings to fly he's picking you up he's carrying you but he's literally he's also giving you the space. Maybe maybe actually the opposite of that that footstep story I told you. That Hashem's not carrying us. He's letting go in order that we can learn how to walk. But don't never forget that he's right there beside you like a like a loving father just waiting for you to learn how to ride and learning how to be independent and he'll be there to catch you if you fall. That is uh, the lesson of I think of this this week's parsha. And uh, we should all be blessed to internalize the message of, of uh, knowing that, that we are never, ever alone. Questions, comments?